I'm Halima Atta, and welcome back to another episode of A Little Perspective. So earlier this week, I took my PSAT, relatively late, I know, compared to a lot of people I know who took it in October. That was kind of like throughout the country as well. Like my school specifically offered it in October and then January 26th because of COVID restrictions. So it went pretty well, just in case anyone was wondering. And obviously with Corona, I hadn't been at school in months. So I was used to that mental map that I had created of the area surrounding it from last year. This ties into what I'm about to say. So just hold on. On the way to school to take the PSAT, my mom and I noticed that the area was being renovated. It very clearly looked different. Like the abandoned mini parking lot had been turned into this modern new gas station. And it was a little odd because the surrounding area still looked the same. If you kept driving past for a minute or two, you would notice that it looked exactly the same. Like the empty parking garage, that brown patchy ugly grass, the single like met the single one metal fence, like the whole gas station that they just built stuck out like a sore thumb. It was surrounded by some very unimproved buildings. So you might be wondering, what is wrong with a new gas station being built? In itself, there is nothing wrong with that. But when you realize what that gas station replaced and the area it's located in, that's when the problem appears. While that might not be a direct example of the issue I'm about to discuss, because sometimes new gas stations just need to be built, it got me thinking of gentrification a concept that I've been wanting to discuss for a while on this podcast, and that recent experience was just the perfect filler. So I've actually covered this topic before really briefly back in season one. Wow, I forgot this is season two. But back in season one, in my episode titled Flaws of the School System Part 1, so you should definitely listen to that for some background. But I wasn't able to go as in-depth on gentrification as I would have wanted to, so this episode kind of serves as a continuation of that. To contextualize this issue, nearly 20% of neighborhoods with lower incomes and home values have experienced gentrification since 2000, compared to only 9% during the 1990s. So this statistic not only familiarizes me with the issue, but its recent growth. So gentrification, I mentioned it a ton already, but what is it exactly? And more importantly, how does it affect low-income communities and the people that live in them? Continue listening to learn all about it. According to the Urban Displacement Project, gentrification can be defined as a process of neighborhood change that includes economic change in a historically disinvested neighborhood, as well as a demographic change, not only in terms of income level, but also in terms of changes in the educational level or racial makeup of residents. So there's kind of a lot to unpack in that definition. It's kind of loaded. So first off, gentrification is a process, a gradual one, meaning it isn't a event, an event that happens on a set date. It occurs over a given period of time. So I kind of refer to gentrification as something that's like one quick event, like, oh, this place wasn't gentrified and now it is, and it happened like super quick. When in reality, it's a gradual process that occurs over the time period of years and years, even decades. So it's something that's gradual. It's one long process. And that's why in this episode's introduction, I really emphasize that my personal anecdote of that renovated gas station wasn't gentrification in itself. It was just one gas station and it got renovated in like a couple months. So it's not like, it doesn't quite meet the qualifications, but it just got me thinking of gentrification. So the next point in that definition that I wanted to kind of unpack and focus on, should I say, is the economic change. What is being referred to when they say economic change? Because it's a pretty broad term. Essentially, this economic change refers to investment patterns. But these investments come from several groups and can manifest themselves in person very differently. 
So to organize these investment patterns into groups conveniently, first, there is the increased investment in neighborhood amenities. So things like parks, public transit, parks. Okay, but to be serious, when I say neighborhood amenities, I'm referring to things that aren't completely necessary, like a park isn't a necessary thing, but they're there for the enjoyment of these neighborhoods' inhabitants. So cities will find and focus on low-income neighborhoods to invest money in, not to improve the quality of living for residents or for their enjoyment, as I just mentioned, but instead to make these neighborhoods look more desirable. And that in itself doesn't sound too radical, like it doesn't sound like it could lead to the displacement of entire communities, but let it represent the first stepping stone in this gentrification process. Next up, there is a changing in land use. This also relates to the aesthetic aspect, I guess you could say, of these neighborhoods. It shifts the environment from abandoned parking garages and dead grass, for example, to one featuring new restaurants, storefronts, and properties like that. Again, to reference the gas station, the area surrounding it is, as I just previously mentioned, unimproved. There's dead grass, random fences. That's what I mean by undesirable. So these two categories I just mentioned, the changing in land use and investment into neighborhood amenities like parks prepares these communities for something called real estate speculation. Basically, since these communities now have better amenities because of investments made into their parks, public transportation, restaurants, storefronts, and overall environments, they're deemed to be of better quality and thus much more valuable and marketable. So what these investors or real estate workers, I guess you could say, do at this point is flip properties, so these low-income homes, and develop higher-end homes, which leads these landlords who own them to actively seek out wealthier people to be able to live in them and afford rent. So given that gentrification relates to the renovation and redevelopment of neighborhoods, many wonder why it even has a negative connotation. Many wonder how something with a good intent could possibly have such awful implications. I want you to reflect on the stages of gentrification, or the stepping stones, which I just explained. Communities get improved, new transit, new, prettier homes, wealthier people, right? Like, but what happened to the people that used to live in those formerly unimproved, low-income communities? That's where the problem with gentrification becomes very visible. The thing is, gentrification renovates neighborhoods and makes them more aesthetically pleasing, desirable, etc., but in the process, it gradually drives out its original inhabitants. Although the large-scale investment into lower-income neighborhoods through better, newly renovated homes, transit, parks, etc. is a positive thing, it leads to a lot of displacement. Because when people can't afford new neighborhood improvements, they're essentially forced to relocate. See, the investment into communities means more money is being allocated to various sectors, which directly translates to a higher cost of living, which many people can't keep up with. So sure, gentrification houses positive effects, just not on the people that it drives out. According to an article by the National Low Income Housing Coalition, gentrification occurs where land is cheap and the chance to make a profit is high due to the influx of wealthier wage earners willing to pay higher rents. Really what this is, is a competition. Basically, the economy, a lot of well, the economy, basically a lot of investors are driven solely by the opportunity to make more money, meaning they don't really care about the well-being of the people living in these low-income communities. All they see is the potential to flip certain homes. They see money. They see, they see one, they see a huge bank. And because of that, there are people who are much wealthier, middle class and above, who are very much willing to spend a lot of money on rent, on transit, on parks, in order to live in these 
areas, which are usually conveniently located at the heart and center of bustling, important cities. And when investors see potential in a low-income community or low-income neighborhoods, they have the chance to completely revitalize it, make it look super aesthetically pleasing, renovate it to please the eye, which makes it more desirable, a lot more valuable, and much more marketable, which makes it significantly easier than it would be if those revampments, if those, it's not even a word, revampments, if those renovations didn't occur meaning that it's a lot easier for real estate investors, investors in general, to be able to sell these houses at exorbitant prices to people willing to pay. And because people living in low-income communities cannot afford such an exorbitant, highly priced rent, they're forced to relocate, and they eventually get displaced completely from these neighborhoods. To reiterate what I said earlier, there can definitely be benefits to gentrification, which is something that a lot of people turn a blind eye to. Sure, there can be a ton of benefits, lower poverty rates, better safety, but this only goes, and it's only something that can be applied to those who are able to afford the rent, meaning the people that it displaces are not going to be seeing these positive effects. To read again from the National Low Income Housing Coalition, there can be benefits to gentrification, but only to long-term residents who are not pushed out. An exclusionary effect of gentrification is the high cost of rents that force low-income households to move to lower-cost neighborhoods with fewer resources. Displaced low-income households most likely end up in new, low-income neighborhoods. Many vulnerable households that do move are renters and are at greater risk of moving to neighborhoods that have lower home values, high unemployment rates, lower median incomes, and poor public school performance. And this kind of combats the counter-argument, the rebuttal that's very commonly made against displacement, which states that because gentrification brings so many great benefits to the people that live in these neighborhoods, it's not something that we should be complaining about, or it's not a prevalent issue, when in reality, these benefits are only benefiting the people that can afford to live there to remain in these in these formerly low-income neighborhoods. In reality, the original inhabitants of these formerly low-income neighborhoods aren't even able to stay in these newly revamped, gentrified neighborhoods to, in- to enjoy their benefits. They're forced to relocate into even worse neighborhoods, which just creates a loop, a cycle, of low-income communities being gentrified and then forcing their original inhabitants to relocate to even worse neighborhoods. But a unique aspect of this issue isn't the economic changes it brings, but rather the cultural shift. The revamping of these formerly low-income neighborhoods displaces original residents, bringing a shift in the community's culture. Because as community-run businesses are replaced due to the different demands from newer residents, changes in the character of these neighborhoods occurs. To read an excerpt from the Urban Displacement Project again, another impact of displacement to consider is cultural displacement. Even for long-time residents who are able to stay in newly gentrifying areas, changes in the makeup and character of a neighborhood can lead to a reduced sense of belonging or feeling out of place in one's own home. So this brings forth another very valid point in the displacement conversation such argument, I guess you could say. When wealthier inhabitants are led to a certain area, an area that was formerly low income, that community culture sees a significant change, a a huge shift. Because, for example, community-run businesses, for example, if there's a small family-owned business, if they can no longer afford to live in a given community, they're going to have to close that business down. And that usually becomes replaced by a bigger chain by a different, maybe more upscale, higher-priced brand or higher-priced business. For example, like a restaurant. If there is a family-owned restaurant, for example, a small business, 
everyone in that community is familiar with them. It's very cozy, like very, it's a very, it's a huge sense of belonging that the inhabitants of that low income neighborhood would feel. Whereas if it gets replaced by a different restaurant, once new wealthier residents move in, people get displaced and the community culture just shifts altogether. Personally, my school is located in a quote unquote urban area, like a lower income neighborhood because it's a magnet school. So they want to have it in those kinds of points throughout the state. So because of that, I've been able to experience this firsthand. And I see this in the culture shift between the literal left side of my school versus the right side of my school. When I tell you that there's the biggest culture shift on the left side, there's more lower income houses, very like family owned businesses, like very small little shops, like stuff like that. But on the other hand, there's a newer neighborhood. It's newly renovated. There's more expensive homes, even the restaurants, the tiny small businesses on the right side versus the left side. The prices are significantly different. When I would go for breaks, like I did band, like I say, I don't know. I think I've referenced this like maybe two times on this show, but when I did band, like back before Corona hit and everything, we would have breaks. And so we would go and like eat lunch on the right side of our school. And the pricing would be pretty expensive compared to the little small restaurants stores on the left side of our school. And I don't say this just to talk about rising prices or like changing prices. I say this to talk about the culture shift because the people that you would find on the right side versus the left side, the overall atmosphere that you would feel on the left side versus the right side was significantly different. And I think that can be attributed to gentrification, given that one side is lower income homes that haven't been renovated, that have been just unimproved, whereas the right side buildings were newly renovated. They were looking for new, wealthier inhabitants. So gentrification can also play a role in the culture shift that a lot of these neighborhoods observe. But perhaps one of the most unrecognized facets of gentrification is its effects on education and the school system. I've touched on this topic in a previous episode, Flaws of the School System Part 1, which you should definitely listen to if you haven't already. I know I already plugged this episode in the beginning of this episode, so just a reminder. But to move on, one would think that gentrification, as many negative effects as it has on lower income communities, would be a way for people to maybe benefit from schools as they may be gentrified too. However, gentrification usually stops there. Instead of sending their children to public schools and increasing the need for money to be allocated to these centers of education, new residents, new parents, more specifically, moving into gentrified areas just don't send their kids to public schools. Instead, the wealthier families populate private schools. According to a study done by New York Daily News, more than 50% of the city's white and Asian school kids in grades 3 through 8 passed this year's state English tests. Fewer than 20% of the city's black and Latino kids did. In summary, when they populate formerly low-income communities that have been gentrified, wealthy people keep their money. It doesn't get allocated to schools and students that need it, which is why there are struggling, unimproved schools located in gentrified areas. In my opinion, this is one of the most surprising elements or aspects, I should say, I think that's a better word, of gentrification. The fact that it doesn't go into the school system, it just stops at housing, it stops at the overall environment and atmosphere of communities, it stops at the pricing of restaurant items, it stops there. It doesn't benefit the school system at all, which is really odd because in a way it could be even more beneficial for those who are investing into these newly gentrified areas and communities. If a school is gentrified as well, it'll have, it'll, that directly translates to better quality of education, better programs, 
better school, but a better school program in general, which would attract a lot more parents as good schools are very desirable for new for new parents and for new people moving into these neighborhoods. So it's definitely money missed to think of it from the eyes of um from the lens, from the perspective of an investor, it's definitely a lot of money that is lost when you think of if schools could be gentrified. But they're not, and they remain underfunded and in struggling states, which kind of is a juxtaposition when you think of that next to really new, super, super expensive apartments. Like you see a really expensive apartment complex in a gentrified area, really nice public area, nice benches, nice atmosphere, and then a school that's literally underfunded. It's really ironic. But all of the information cited in this episode isn't to say that gentrification is a super common issue that is observed everywhere and it's like going to eat all of our communities alive. No, gentrification is actually relatively rare on a national or even a global scale, but it's continuing to increase in prevalence. So it might not be that way forever, meaning it's really important that we familiarize ourselves with this issue, what it is, how it manifests itself into people's lives, which I've discussed earlier in the episode, because it's something that could be the future for a lot of urban cities and populations. So all of the statements that I've said throughout this episode really just allude to the fact that gentrification is a really mixed issue. It can have positive effects for certain communities, but it also has very negative effects on the populations, on the people that it displaces. It can have positive effects on things like crime rates, poverty rates, but it also leads to the creation of even more lower income neighborhoods, which translates to increasing poverty rates, increasing crime rates, which is really a confusing thing. To read from an article by the Stanford Center for Education Policy Analysis, where gentrification does happen, the changes have real and complex consequences for students, as schools may be forced to grapple with budget cuts, but neighborhoods also see declining crime rates. Which is what led Francis Pearman, the Stanford professor who conducted a study pertaining to gentrification, to say it really is a mixed bag. There's no clear story to tell. So a widely unrecognized issue, gentrification is a mixed bag. Just like Pearman said, there's really no way to tell what it will do in the future, what it will look like in the future. But given that it's been increasing in prevalence since trends observed in the 1990s, it's definitely something to be familiar with. So who knows, maybe the gas station that I saw that got recently renovated near my school will be the start to gentrification on a bigger scale. Maybe gentrification will rise in prevalence in Florida. Who knows? But for now, it's really important to familiarize ourselves with the issue to see how we could combat it. So to help everyone visualize this issue, I'll be posting an infographic on my Instagram later on today at a little purse podcast on Instagram. You should definitely follow it and check it out so that you can kind of visualize this issue because I do make a lot of references to buildings and like specific structures I see on the street. So it'll be really helpful if you're able to see that in person. With that being said, thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I learned a lot about gentrification, and I hope that you were able to learn a lot about this issue too, because it's something that a lot of people are familiar with, like the name itself and that's it, but many are not aware of the effects that it houses on low-income communities, people living in low-income communities, and why it exists in the first place. Because it's really weird to think that when a neighborhood gets revamped, when it becomes more aesthetically pleasing, desirable, and marketable, The prices go up so high that the people that originally lived there can't afford it anymore, and it drives them out. So it's really, as Francis Pearman said, researcher at Stanford University, it's really a mixed bag, and that's why it's so important that we familiarize ourselves with this issue so that we can 
do research for ourselves and understand it even better because it's a bit complex. And I don't know if my 20 minute episode is able to give you all the knowledge in the world. So again, thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you were able to learn something completely new about gentrification. And I will see you next Thursday here on A Little Perspective. (laughs) 